0: To God's Word, to 2 Corinthians today. I'm not beginning a series of anything. We have completed what I wish to do with the Ten Commandments, and next week I'll tell you what comes next. But this is a uh, standalone message today on a very practical subject for our church. I turn to some words from Paul, Second Corinthians 2. This is a chapter that begins with the Apostle explaining himself. There'd been some difficulty and misunderstanding between him and the Corinthians, and he's trying to work that out and reconcile it. He's also sharing in verses 12 and 13 that he said, "I uh, my spirit was not at rest because he didn't know where Titus was. He was supposed to meet Titus, and so things are in a little bit of a tizzy for Paul, you might say. But then he utters in the midst of that a great word of confidence and faith. And I read these several verses. I'll be expounding them only briefly today and doing more by the way of application of them uh, than anything else. But listen to God's word here. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is God's holy word. Today I'm remembering a woman I knew in the church I served in Maryland quite a few years ago, a fine disciple of Christ, a leader in women's Bible studies and other ministries. Eileen was a striking woman. She was able to afford fine clothing. She always was dressed impeccably. And she must have also shopped, I would have thought, at least, at the perfume counter where some people perhaps couldn't afford to shop. And Eileen had a distinctive perfume that it it seemed to me at least that she always wore. I couldn't have told you what it was. I never asked that question. But my only criticism of her would have been she wore it to excess, I think. I could enter that church building, which was a smaller building than this, but I could be in one part of the building and maybe move about and not see Eileen and not be sure if she was there by my eyes, but I knew she was there because she had passed through literally if she had gone down a hallway or been in a room that I was in next, I knew she was there because she had this distinctive perfume that was very strong that you could always notice. You did not need to be a bloodhound to find Eileen in that church, wonderful woman of God. Well, Paul wrote here in 2 Corinthians 2, and as I say, he was in a bit of turmoil in the beginning of this letter. Someday I hope to preach through this whole letter with you, but uh, things were at sixes and sevens, you might say. The, the Corinthians had misunderstood some things and been hurt by some things, and he had to smooth their feathers, and then he was expressing his own anxiety about where Titus was because he wasn't found in a, in a spot. Boy, you know, we all feel like that sometimes. Uh, and Paul was just a little upset here, like our little friend this morning. And he wasn't making that kind of noise, but he was letting them know that there are difficulties in ministering. But then it's, it's like he takes a hold of himself at verse 14, and he kind of goes off on a digression that actually lasts for several chapters and expresses a tremendous positive word of thanks that God is indeed doing something wonderful through the ministry of the apostles and the beginning of new churches. And so we have this great verse that has long grabbed my attention when he says, Thanks be to God. For in Christ, he is always leading us in a triumphal procession. And through us is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. I love those words. It's an intriguing idea to hear the knowledge of Christ compared to a fragrance in the air. Now, we know Paul's not talking about a literal smell, but it nevertheless is an interesting figure of speech. Of the five human senses, smell is probably the one mentioned the least in the Bible. But here in this remarkable verse, it is employed in a way that, that sort of stirs us up and stirs our imagination. I would put this verse alongside another word from Paul in Ephesians 5.2, where we read there, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, pretty obviously there, he's using Old Testament ideas of the fact that sometimes offerings were made to God that were simply incense offerings, and there was no animal involved. It was just a matter of a a, a beautiful smell filling the air like a prayer, like a tactile prayer. Other times, incense was used along with an animal sacrifice because… Let's face it, the burning of animal flesh isn't the most pleasant thing in the world. And by adding incense to a sacrifice, it was made more pleasant, not just for the observers or the ones making the offering, but in their thoughts, it was a pleasant thing coming before God. Now, there's a special concept, we think, behind 2 Corinthians 2.14, this key verse I'm, I'm pointing you to this morning, We and the commentators are pretty agreed on this, that it most likely came in Paul's mind from the common thing in that time in the world when a Roman general would have won a victory and was coming back to home base, whether that was Rome or some other city, and approaching the city in a grand victory parade. Uh, the, the, you know, the generals and the troops would want their glory, their, their conquests to be celebrated. And so this would be staged. The general would come in in his grand chariot with the finest matched horses at the head of the parade. The troops would all be lined up perfectly with their shields and their spears and everything. But also in the parade would be marching along, probably held by ropes or even chains, captives, slaves taken in the battle who were now paraded. And of course, the more people you had captured, the more glorious the victory appeared to be. So drums would beat, trumpets would blare, and another feature of it was that there would be metal bowls in which incense would be burned so that clouds of fragrant incense would be drifting out all along this parade route. You could literally not just see the victory, but you could smell it. We think Paul had that in mind. A strange image, perhaps, but but look at how he applies it to what Christ has done. He's saying Christ has won a great victory on his cross and in his resurrection. And he, our commander, is parading through this world, through history, with his troops with him and, and those he has taken captive, whom he has stolen away from sin and death, and that would be ourselves. Actually, by the way, most commentators think Paul, in giving this imagery, looked upon himself as one of the captives in the parade, taken away from the jaws of death. And he's saying, what a thing. Here's Christ on his victory parade, and I am with him. What confidence there is for him as an apostle to know that he's involved in God's work, and it's as if the conquest can even be smelled upon the air. Well, as I've said, my message is an unusual one today because I've said most of what I plan to about the text as far as expounding it. I will come back to verses 15 and 16 before I finish. But what I want to do for most of our time today is apply this to the endeavor that Paul was engaged in, the work of planting new churches, and see how it touches on our calling to do the same in our day and age in 2014 and beyond. First of all, the victory parade of Christ leads us here to consider what I'm going to call the historic gospel imperative to plant new churches. Now there's no question that Paul was acting under that imperative. We finished studying the book of Acts about six months ago and we had gone through it for many months and looked at most of its significant passages and chapters and saw how the the book was about the gospel moving out from the center in Jerusalem, touching on Judea and Samaria and the farther parts of the earth, and the Gentiles began to be included in it. And God did amazing things as the Holy Spirit brought the message of Christ and changed lives, and tremendous things were stirred up. But I would hope that you would remember what happened in Acts and the emphasis of Acts was not that the apostles went out and and entered a town or a vicinity and just sort of had said, let's stage a, you know, we're gonna have a two-day evangelism blitz and everybody who responds to Christ, that's great and then we'll leave town and run to the next place. Even though it does seem like they're moving around pretty fast in Acts, we're just being given the fragments. We know that what they were concerned to do was to establish churches where people responded. And usually Paul or the chief apostles would would leave someone like Barnabas or Timothy or Titus or Silas in one of these towns to shape the people, train them, teach them, nurture them, guide them to get a church established. There was this historic gospel imperative to plant new churches and it was because of new churches being planted that after all what's most of the new testament letters written to encourage and build up churches we wouldn't have most of our new testament if it was not that churches needed the encouragement and the writing of those who were more mature in the faith well it's rather easy you know you say all right you know i understand that that's what was going on in acts and i understand that that continued to go on in early church history and the early centuries, and, and you might even say, yes, I understand that that was going on, let's say, in, in uh, 17th and 18th century America, as our country was settled and people moved across westward and churches, sure, the continuing imperative to plant new churches. But you know, there are people who would say, well, I think the day for that is pretty well over. Pastor, don't you understand we live in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania? This is the buckle of the Bible belt. That's so they tell me, at least as far as the northeastern United States is concerned. This is a very churched part of the country. Pastor, don't you understand there are almost too many churches in Lancaster County? Some would say. I think they're absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. The imperative to plant gospel-based churches goes on today. I can argue it rather easily even on a mathematical model for you. I did not look up, and I know this congregation well enough to know that somebody will probably be on their phone with Google figuring it out while I'm preaching, but I didn't look up the population of Lancaster County in 1800, 200 years ago. Let's say around the War of 1812. That would be just exactly 200 years. I'm just going to guess, okay? I'm probably within a near shouting distance if I said under 50,000 people in Lancaster County 200 years ago. Now, we do know there's over 500,000 people today. The question I'm asking you is, which of those two periods, eighteen thirteen, or 2013, do you think on a per capita basis now, proportional basis to the population, was better served by gospel-preaching churches where the Bible was respected fully as God's word, Christ crucified and risen, was clearly spoken, conversions were happening, God was working, God's people were praying. Proportionately speaking to the population, which of those ages was better off? There is not any question access to that kind of a church was easier in 1813 in Lancaster County than it is today. We have not kept pace with our population, with churches that uphold the reality of Christ and the authentic Christian life, with churches who exude from their pulpits and their fellowships and their teaching assemblies and their outreach ministries the aroma of Jesus Yes, we have lots of buildings with steeples on. Some of them haven't caught a whiff of the aroma of Jesus Christ for 50 or 100 years. And that is not meant to criticize any particular fellowship nor to exalt ours. It is meant to state a fact. We need new gospel churches in this day and age. Westminster Presbyterian Church has seen that as a big part of our calling and our heritage. And I want to just quickly trace a little bit, and some of you, this is old hat, but we have new folks who don't know what we've been doing here and have not been with us for a very long time necessarily. And if I trace this history, I really hope I can trace it not with boasting, not that you would go away and say, oh, boy, that pastor was really showing off how great his church is, boy, you've heard me wrong if that's what you hear. I want to say in humble thanksgiving to God, just a brief recitation of what God's been doing through us in this continuing gospel imperative to plant new churches now for a number of years. Okay, at first, of course, starting in 1968, we had to be built up ourselves, But when this congregation had reached a certain point, a few hundred, I don't know exactly what the number was, in 1983 and 84, some folks who lived in Ephrata said, hey, there's a number of us here from Ephrata. Why wouldn't we have a separate congregation? Not because we're mad at anybody, but because this would serve the community. And so a fledgling effort was begun. And it struggled, I understand, a bit at first, but then Ephrata Reformed Presbyterian Church emerged. Today, that's a healthy congregation. In downtown Effort, a couple hundred people meeting every single Sunday. God has raised up wonderful ministries out of that church, a a ministry to special needs people that has affected our whole denomination began in that church. Now, in 1995, when I was new here, we were ready to say, well, we think something else has to happen. I was a little bit stunned as a new pastor coming here to a approximately 700-member congregation when I was less than a year here when 100 people walked out the door, and they weren't mad at me. At least, I don't think they were. Just about 100 adults left us to begin Wheatland Presbyterian Church on the other side of town. God has done a great thing through Wheatland, a church that is very much like us yet has its own identity its own witness, its own ministry, and I believe it's about 350 people today uniting there in witness and worship and ministry. In 2003, we contributed more folks, including some very key leaders, some folks who had been with us from early time and were, were very mature in leadership, who went to start a church that's now called Harvest Presbyterian. They have a new building, many of you know, on Route 222, just down from Willow Street towards Quarryville the steeples visible for quite a ways. They are now beginning to grow and establish their outreaches in ministry. In 2007, another opportunity came as a, an African-American pastor was in our midst and we felt we ought to enable him to reach a unique population in the city of Lancaster. And so Stanley Morton began to be the focus of New City Fellowship, which now meets. And by the way... I believe it's next Sunday or the week after New City will be at a new location of greater opportunity, we hope, as it meets in a Lutheran church at West King and Manor Avenue. This church is still developing. It's it's not completely self supporting and self governing yet, but it's growing, and God is using it towards an urban population. Now that's you could say humanly speaking, four successes. They're God's successes, they're not ours. And we need to be realistic and tell you that church planting has risks. It doesn't always work out as we want it to. Along the way, this congregation in the late 80s and early 90s was in Landisville with a church planting effort that was closed. After a lot of hard work, a lot of effort at evangelism and organization, it was finally decided that it wasn't growing as it should. Sadly, again, in Lidditz. In the 2000s, we saw a great beginning, hard work by talented, gifted, dedicated people, and it had to close. You know what? That's exactly like the apostolic age. There were churches founded by Paul and Peter and the others that did not go forward for various reasons. The tears and the reality of New Testament church planting are that you will not always see and realize what you think or what you hope you would try to do. Well, while all this was underway just continuing the history here we are at home base Westminster Church. And guess what? This church was not diminished by all these folks going forth from us. We grew more ourselves. Right now we're teaching a new members class and when they're received, I believe if all the accounts are shaken down at the end of the year this this congregation will have right close to 1,200 members. Now, those aren't 1,200 people who are sort of imaginary and some of them have moved away and are long gone or something. Those are 1,200 people who are primarily uh, going on with some kind of a loyalty to this congregation. How has this happened? How have we kept on growing? There would be some who would say to us, well, why didn't you just concentrate on Hey, you've got more land now that you didn't have before. Why don't you just build the this, this super church, the Walmart church here, you know, and be everything to everybody and put everybody else out of business or something? Well, obviously, we're not interested in putting anybody out of business. But we believe that however we might grow, we need to keep on looking for opportunities to plant Christ Church in population areas of our county where we can impact and reach into needs of the community that we will not reach ourselves as a very large church here on Oregon Pike. We would not have the impact that New City Fellowship has on the city of Lancaster ourselves. We can support that. We can send those who are doing that. We wouldn't do it as effectively as they are doing it. You know something else that happens? Every time we undertake this endeavor, I've watched it now several times. We always have a little bit of fear and trepidation. We say, no, wait a minute now, we're going to give up good leaders. In 1995, when Wheatland began, I remember distinctly there were six young, they'd already been ordained as deacons in our church. All of them, I believe, no more than their early 40s. Now, that's the future of a deacon board. And I kind of grimaced. We're going to send six deacons out the door? Well, guess what? Wheatland needed those deacons more than we did. And guess what? I haven't known that we've had empty seats for deacons since then either. God has challenged other people to be brought forward into leadership. New talents were recognized. We were stretched. We had to make up for giving that went out the door. And the church flourished. You can always think of it as a loss, you know? Oh, my. If we start a new church, we'll have 5% less giving next year. Guess what? We're going to challenge the rest of you to supply that. You didn't know that, did you? We're going to because that's the way the church works. By my reckoning, adding up statistics that are available, we have nearly 1,200 people worshiping Christ within these walls every week. We have hundreds of others who worship Christ with us in various ways, by radio, by outreaches that we have. And I believe we have somewhere between 800 and maybe 900, I'm estimating, gathered in our four growing daughter congregations, who, by the way, we call them sisters now. Almost 800 or 900 more who are not here. And I don't think you could argue that they would have been here either had we not started the new churches. Won't it be a great day when we can say there are actually more folks in the daughters total than are here within our walls? That'll be a day to say glory to God because the aroma of Christ is stirring in Lancaster. Now then, I want to turn, and I think you all know that this is aimed at something we're doing in in particular, and give me your patience this morning. I'll try to watch the clock, but what are we planning for our newest daughter opportunity? We're looking at an area of opportunity in Elizabethtown and Mount Joy, townships, areas that are growing, places that are actually within a short drive of the eastern suburbs of Harrisburg close to Hershey. There are great things happening there, and we think a ministry could be developed there. And you know perhaps that Pastor Troy De Bruin, who's been on our staff for 13 years, I was watching him make a presentation about the church last night, and I thought, is this guy really 40 years old? Troy doesn't look 40 years old, but he is. His wife looks 30. Free compliment for you, Amy. Uh, And yet they have a beautiful family of six children. We believe Troy is ready for this ministry. That doesn't mean he's Superman. It does mean he's been tested. It does mean he's gifted. He's a great preacher. When he preaches on Sunday morning, we always get at least one blue slip comment, why don't you have that guy preach more often? which I take to mean they want me to preach less, is what's being said. We believe Troy's ready. He's not ready to do it all by himself. He has a session. We have a session organized around him. I am one of six other elders meeting with him every month to guide and direct as plans are being laid. We won't leave him all alone to fall down on his face. Many questions exist. Come tomorrow night at 630 and find out some answers, but I'll just suggest a couple. Where is this fellowship going to meet? Everybody wants to know that. We don't know the answer yet. We know a possibility or two, but we're not going to announce it until we're sure of where it's going to be. What exactly is it going to look like? Those things are being formulated. It's going to look a lot like us, but obviously different. Aren't your children a little bit different than you are? You know, all parents want to sometimes force their children into a parental mold. Well, obviously, they have your DNA, they have your genes, but they become individuals. And that's what we want for this ministry. Troy said some things and has written some things. And by the way, I I was going to mention the name. The name of the church will be Proclamation Presbyterian Church. Because this is going to be a church that will proclaim the glories of him who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Troy said some interesting things last night about who should go as a core group and who should not. I'm not going to repeat exactly what he said, but I'll give you my own version, shorter version. First of all, I would tell you who should not go. That sounds strange, doesn't it? If we want to motivate people to be a core group of a new church, why would we be negative? Well, because there are some people who should not go. And that, are, that is those people who have been perhaps in many church assemblies, three, four, five of them in a dozen years or so, and they can tell you a tale about what was wrong with every one of them. Let me tell you, folks, don't take your dissatisfactions and your discontent to a new church and expect it to be solved. That discontent exists inside of you, and you will take it with you. Don't go merely out of curiosity at the novelty of something new, because let me tell you, novelty wears off. If you're sitting on a steel chair in a rented hall instead of a nice soft pew, the novelty starts to wear off. And you better have something besides novelty holding you there. Don't go as a mere camp follower of the pastor. Gifted man that he is, Troy's a a sinner saved by grace. He's also a Tigers fan, which is a real problem. (laughs) Detroit Tigers. We'll talk about that some other time. But other than that, I don't find a lot of flaws in him. But let me tell you, he's a sinner saved by grace. And if you're there because of Troy De Bruin alone, you're there for the wrong reason. We do hope some of you will go. We hope by early December we'll have an idea of possibly 40, 50. I don't know how many of you would be motivated to say, I think I could undertake this ministry. If that's going to be you, you ought to live westward from Oregon Pike, I would think. Joining this church if you live in New Holland wouldn't be a real good idea. By the way, the the center area of it is is at least about 15 miles from here, so this is one of the furthest out churches we've tried to start. You should be somebody who's zealous for the gospel, not just saying, well, what am I going to get from this? I'm going to go and soak in more good Bible teaching. You need to be zealous for the gospel and for people who don't already know Christ. You need to be someone who's going to be involved, who's going to roll up your sleeve, who's going to take on a task because, let me tell you, folks who just sit are not real useful in a brand-new church. We need folks who will work. You perhaps need to think about sacrifices. You may have older children or teens, and you say, well, will they have a youth group right away? Probably not on day one, that's for sure. You need to think about those things. Maybe your youth need to be involved here on Wednesdays while you're there. That's a good thing to do. And then let me give you this challenge as I'm closing this morning. We who remain here in Westminster have a task in relation to this church. Otherwise, I wouldn't be preaching to all of you about it. You'd say, why don't you just preach this to those who become the core group? Because we too must sacrifice. As I mentioned before, financial support will go out the door when core group members leave. Will you be somebody who will say, I believe in a church that has the gospel imperative of new congregations? I'll dig in to help make that up. Will you be a person who says, you know what, there are going to be fewer nursery workers, fewer vacation Bible school workers, fewer deacons? I'll step up. I'll look for opportunities and see how I might respond. This is the work of the whole church. And above all else, will you be one who prays? Will you begin to pray right now? The Bruins are looking to buy a home. Will you pray that God will open the door to the right home for them, possibly soon? The right place to meet, the right decisions that need to be made. Lots of decisions are awaiting. Troy wrote this in some of the materials that he handed out the other night. I was struck by this sentence. It comes as a play on the church's name, Proclamation Presbyterian. We have been made God's people so we may proclaim his excellencies. And then he quoted John Piper who said, God made us who we are to show the world who he is. That's what this new church is about. The aroma of Christ. Back to our text. I haven't abandoned it. And I close with verses 15 and 16 of it as we read there. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those being saved and those who are perishing. To one, we are the fragrance of death unto death. To the other, a fragrance of life unto life. Have you had the experience of walking down a city street? Maybe you're a tourist in some area or you're in the city And you pass a bakery, my wife's grip tightens on me when this happens. Because the bakery door opens as a customer comes out, and I'm just passing, and you know what happens. Out comes the most delicious aroma in the world fresh baked bread. Carol knows what's going to happen. If she doesn't hold me tight, I'm in the door, my wallet's out, I'm looking for the chocolate chip cookies or the fresh rye bread or something. I'm going to buy because the aroma has drawn me in. The aroma of Christ, of course, is not a literal smell. But can you imagine some people going past that same bakery shop that drew me in, smelling that and turning to their companion and saying, what is that terrible stench? That smells awful. I can't even imagine that most beautiful smell in the world comes from bakeries. But some people are turned off by the aroma of Christ. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. The gospel goes into the world and becomes a dividing force that those who will not know Christ, who refuse to know Christ, turn away. And those whom God is calling to himself are drawn. Folks, the development of a whole new local congregation is a tremendous, incomparable adventure. The years I spent doing that were both the hardest and the most thrilling years of a long ministry. There are risks involved. There are problems to solve. There are difficulties. There are tears to be shed. But the eternal destiny of souls will be affected by what is done. And so we approach this challenge the way Paul did, and we ask his question, who is sufficient to do these things? Not I, not Troy De Bruin, not any one of us, but the Lord Jesus Christ who goes in victory procession is sufficient for everything he calls his people to do. Thanks be to God. Father, help us as a church. This is a, an exciting time, but also a risky time and a, a time when we could make wrong turns and, and do wrong things. And so, Lord, we consecrate this effort to you. And I pray today that you would begin to call some and intrigue some by the voice of your spirit to think, perhaps I belong there. Perhaps I could be part. I could even be one of the captives in Christ's procession who add to his glory because I'm there with him. Use us, Lord. Bring your glory through your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.